0: It's really interesting to have somebody so long ago start to see this option, and he deserves a lot more renown than he has. Silvio Gazelle is you know, known much more than Eisler now, partly because Keynes talked about him, and, and Keynes should have talked about Eisler as well.
1: That was the economist Miles Kimball. And the Keynes he was talking about is John Maynard Keynes, the famous British economist whose ideas were the foundation of economics all over the world from the Great Depression until Nixon. Ever since I started this podcast, I have been dreading two moments when I would have to make a fool of myself. The first is explaining Eisler's work on the so-called Slavonic translations of the writings of the first century Roman Jewish historian Josephus, which he took as the basis for his explanation of early Christian history. I did that last week. The second moment I've been dreading is explaining Eisler's plan for stabilizing economies with a dual currency monetary system. That moment has now arrived. I'm Brian Collins, and this is A Very Square Peg, a podcast about Robert Eisler. This is episode number six, Negative Interest. time is 1934. In the wake of the stock market crash of 1929, the U.S. is experiencing record levels of unemployment that have only been surpassed in the past few weeks. It's April 2020 as I record this, and the spread of COVID-19 has wiped out more jobs in one month than were created in the last decade. Let's return to the happier days of the Great Depression. In 1933, FDR had issued Executive Order 6102, which made it a criminal offense for U.S. citizens to own or trade gold anywhere in the world. Now Congress is debating the Gold Reserve Act, which would put control of the gold supply in the U.S. Treasury Department so that the President can raise the price. Raising the price will increase the money supply, devalue the dollar, and lower interest rates in order to encourage investments. On January 20th, the Committee on Banking and Currency, chaired by Florida Democrat Duncan Fletcher, is in session to hear from experts on monetary policy. It's time for the last scheduled testimony before the committee's two-day break, and the last expert begins to speak.
2: Mr. Chairman and gentlemen, my name is Robert Eisler. I am a doctor of philosophy, a member of the Austrian Historical Institute, and the author of a general history of the monetary system, the author of a book on stable money, and I am considered an authority on the continent on the question of real monetary stabilization.
1: Iser has arrived in America, probably for the first and only time, to try and talk the committee out of relying on the gold supply to stabilize prices and inflate currency. He does this with a version of the same speech he has already given in Britain. He is staying with his wife's family in Philadelphia, including his 25-year-old niece, Rosalie. None of them are very enthusiastic about his presence. Iser begins like this.
2: Every laborer, every officer, every white-collar worker is a creditor to the extent to which he lends his work for one week, one month, or one year to his employer. There is no other way of increasing his nominal income in such a way that his real income remains unimpaired but to give him constant compensation for the loss which he otherwise would suffer through the depreciation of the money which we have to face for the immediate and for the further future. Now this is an interesting way to think about it.
1: You're lending out your labor power when you work, but you're not getting a good return. As costs of living go up, you as a worker are effectively being paid in depreciated currency because the yearly salary you agreed upon in January will be worth less in December. Or say you get paid $100 a week so that at the end of the week you can fill your gas tank for $20 and have $80 left over. But if one week the cost of gas goes up and it costs $25 to fill your tank, then the $100 you agreed to work for on Monday is worth less than $100 on Friday.
2: Here's how Eisler explains it. If you deposit today $100 in a bank, and thereby create a contract under which you are entitled to draw out of the bank the equivalent amount of money and purchasing power under the actual system, and under the system which will exist in this country under the new legislation, the bank would be allowed to repay you in depreciated currency, although the cost of living may have gone up from 100 to 110, and even to 150 or 200. If the cost of living has gone up to 150, your money is depreciated by one-third. Nevertheless, the bank would be allowed to repay you in currency worth 66 cents.
1: You have probably forgotten by now that Eisler's first PhD was in economics but back in 1924, he published a major work called Money, Its Historical Origin and Social Significance. And as we have already seen, he was very anxious for A.B. Varberg's banker brothers to look at it. In the introduction to that book, he tells the reader that the economic collapse that followed World War I inspired him to write a history of money aimed at lay readers. It has a lot of images that apparently come from a slideshow that he would have taken with him when he took the lecture on the road. But let's get back to his testimony. Now, Eisler is explaining how to stabilize the value of currency by amending the law under consideration by the
2: subcommittee. If a one-line amendment could be inserted into the Thomas Rankin Amendment declaring all these coins and notes hitherto issued or coined by or under the authority of the United States legal tender for all debts, public and private, to the extent of their purchasing power on the day of payment, Every creditor would have to be constantly compensated for loss occurring through depreciation of the currency. The bank would have to pay 110 cents to the depositor of one dollar as soon as the cost of living has gone up from 100 to 110. Under this system, every single worker, every single trader would get every week exactly the amount of compensation in currency, which would make it possible for him to buy, in spite of raised prices, what he had bought the week before. Only by such compensated reflation, the detail of which is explained in further detail in published books of mine, could you add constantly to the total purchase power of the United States and all other nations.
1: A little later we will get into the details of Eisler's plan, but first, let's listen to an exchange Eisler is having with two clearly skeptical senators. The first is Alban Barkley of Kentucky, and the second is Carter Glass of Virginia.
2: I should like to add very briefly a few words more on the fact that if this country returns to a gold standard, modified or not, to a gold standard under which the monetary unit is convertible, either into a fixed or into a variable amount of grains of gold, this country must have, according to stringent mathematical demonstrations, periodical crises such as have occurred every six, seven, eight, nine, or 9, or 10 years, all through the industrial system. If this country returns to gold, either in the old or the new form, these crises will occur, the next one occurring not very late after 1936, maybe before. The date of these recurrent crises being perfectly calculable by the new mathematical methods.
3: In other words, you think we are likely to get into another fix before we get out of this?
2: Quite. I am entirely convinced of that.
3: Why on earth should you make it in 1936 when we want to re-elect another Democratic president and Congress?
2: I cannot help the fact that according to the formulas worked out in my Bureau of Mathematics, we think that this is about the margin, the latitude which you can achieve by expanding credit and one of the forms which have hitherto been suggested. I think said if this country returns to gold instead of returning to a stabilization of the exchanges by means of mutual credit, if it returns to a gold standard instead of returning to a perfectly acceptable sterling dollar standard, the greatest opportunity in history would be missed, and another generation will have to carry the weight of an unfortunate and entirely obsolete monetary system. It's clear that Eisler is
1: opposed to the gold standard. But what does he want instead? That's
2: what Senator Barkley wants to know.
3: Have you a definite system or monetary program that you care to submit?
2: I have, Senator. I have worked out not only this one-line amendment, which could easily and in a short time be passed, but at the end of this mimeogram, you will find a definite and complete draft of a monetary law explaining the way in which a modern reserve bank ought to expand credit and currency, both for the stabilization of the exchanges and for the achievement of an optimum price level.
3: Have you submitted this plan of yours?
2: I have submitted it in executive session.
3: No, I mean to different nations.
2: Oh, Yes. It has been submitted to the British Parliamentary Finance Committee on the 10th of February, 1932. I was introduced at that time by Sir Robert Horn, former Chancellor of the Exchequer, and a vote of thanks was moved by the former Minister of Colonies, Mr. Leo Emoy.
3: Has any nation adopted it?
2: No nation has adopted it. It can be adopted not by any nation of the small size of my own. I am an Austrian it can only be adopted by a sufficiently large and independent economic unit. The unit must be self-sufficient to the extent that it needs no essential imports from outside. The United States are self-sufficient to the extent of 94 and probably 95 percent. The British Empire is self-sufficient to the extent of 93, probably 94 percent. If the two Anglo-Saxon nations were to work conjointly, they could completely revolutionize the world and achieve such prosperity and such wealth as cannot be dreamed of under present circumstances.
1: Right now, as I write this, the price of oil has dropped to record lows. At some point, it was even at a negative value because storing it cost more money than it was worth. Carbon emissions aside, this seems like it would be good for the economy because it would make fuel cheaper, reducing the cost of shipping goods. But if oil or anything else gets too cheap, it's no longer profitable to produce it. And in a free market, that means people stop producing it, so they lay off their workers, who now have no income and can't buy anything. The only thing you can really do to turn this situation around is create demand artificially, which is what the government does when it buys things like corn and soybeans that are overproduced to the point that farmers can't sell them. Then the government usually gives this excess away to developing nations as foreign aid, where some economists argue it destroys the local commodities market by flooding it with free goods. Farmers in developing countries can't sell their corn at market if free American corn is available to their customers. The important thing is, in a free market, companies don't make things that people need. They make things that can be sold at a profit. To get out of an economic depression, you have to raise prices of basic commodities to create incentives for people to start producing them again, which means they will hire workers and create jobs. But this causes its own problems down the line because commodities become too expensive for people to afford. As Eisler explained in his testimony, the problem for workers is that the money they receive as salary is constantly losing its value because the cost of living keeps getting higher and higher through inflation. His solution was to create stable money. I'll do my best now to explain how stable money works, at least how Eisler's version of it does. Eisler drew on a historical practice from the Italian Renaissance called banco money to argue for a currency system in which there would be two sorts of money. The first would be called current money, which you would only use for small transactions. The second would be banco money, whose value would remain stable because it would be set not by how much gold it was worth, but according to the average prices of daily necessities. The purpose of creating two parallel systems of currency is to allow central banks to get around the problem economists call the zero lower bound. Interest rates are the most effective tools that central banks have of regulating the economy because lowering interest rates makes it unprofitable to hoard money in low-interest accounts. In low-interest accounts, money just sits there and does not circulate in the economy. The more money just sits there, the less money is available for paying wages, investing in new technologies, and building new businesses. Central banks lower interest rates so that if you sit on your money without spending it, the low interest you collect, like in a savings account, does not make up for the rising cost of living. In other words, it punishes hoarding and incentivizes investments in riskier but more widely beneficial ventures like loaning to a small business. The zero lower bound, as I understand it, refers to the fact that at some point, as interest rates approach zero, central banks have nowhere left to go and no levers left to pull. Now, there is, in fact, such a thing as a negative interest rate, but we'll talk about that later. If there were two parallel currency systems like Eisler's plan calls for, one for payments and one for exchange, then the central bank could create an effective negative interest rate by manipulating the rate of exchange between the two currencies. For example, if the exchange rate of current money to banco money was one to one, the central bank could set a future exchange rate, maybe for one year from now, of 0.95 to one effectively taxing those who hold current money at 5% and thereby compelling them to lend, invest, or convert it into banco. Meanwhile, workers wouldn't be losing money because the banco money they are paid in would continually be adjusted to meet the cost of living. In the wake of the Great Depression, which wiped out the fortune of his own family, as you remember, Eisler actually published three books for popular audiences on how to reform the monetary system. This Money Maze, A Way Out of the Economic World Crisis in 1931, Stable Money in 1932, and with the economist Alec Wilson as co-author, The Money Machine, A Simple Introduction to the Eisler Plan, which came out in 1933. At first, when I saw these books attributed to Robert Eisler, I thought they were written by a different guy with the same name. Once a week, I get all these notices from academia.edu telling me that I've been quoted in a paper about genetics or electrical engineering, but of course those papers are all referencing a different Brian Collins. this actually is the same Robert Eisler who wrote about value theory, cosmology, Orpheus, and eventually werewolves. And Eisler's ideas often got the same skeptical reception among economists as they did among historians of religion. For instance, when he reviewed This Money Maze in the Economic Journal in 1932, the economist Edwin Cannon wrote, It is difficult to answer the arguments of a nightmare. However, to my surprise, economics is actually one area where Eisler is now getting some respect. I found this out when I stumbled upon a blog post by Miles Kimball, the Eugene D. Eaton Jr. Chair in Economics at the University of Colorado Boulder. The blog post mentioned Eisler's name and the specifics of his plan. I emailed Dr. Kimball after reading it, and he became the first interview I ever did for this podcast about a year ago. The first thing I wanted to know from Professor Kimball is what I always want to know from people who quote Robert Eisler. How did you find him?
0: Oh, I had a column about having a dual currency system and people online started to tell me about other things that people had written and directed me to some of willem bowder's writings and and bowder in turn mentioned Eisler.
1: willem bowder is no joke he did his phd in economics at yale in 1975 and taught at the woodrow wilson school of princeton university and the london school of economics and political science in 2010, he was made the chief economist at Citigroup, the third largest bank in the U.S. As far as I can tell, he first started writing about Eisler in 2004. The first paper was called Negative Interest Rates by Unbounding Numeraire and Medium of Exchange. Is Numerology the Future of Monetary Economics? That's a title. Numeraire refers to one of the functions of money, which is to calculate relative values. Remember value theory? To give an example, it's hard to compare the value of a barrel of Brent crude oil to a share of Amazon stock, but you can do it when you talk in terms of dollars. The medium of exchange function of money is, of course, to buy things. So in the title of his paper, Bowder is equating Eisler's Banco money to his numeraire and his current money to the medium of exchange. In a second paper from 2004, called Overcoming the Zero Bound, Gesell vs. Eisler, discussion of Mitsuhiro Fukao's The Effects of Gesell Currency Taxes in Promoting Japan's Economic Recovery. Bowder compares Eisler's dual currency system with the one developed by Silvio Gesell, a left-wing anarchist who lived on a vegetarian commune and developed what he called a free economy in the early 20th century. Gesell's dual currency model, like Eisler's, was designed to discourage hoarding money by making cash less valuable the longer you held on to it. Here's Professor Kimball explaining it.
0: So Silvio Gessel had the idea of stamped currency. So in one way, it's not as far from the Eisler plan as you might think, because if you didn't put a stamp on on the bill, then it would have a depreciated value. So it, so there was depreciation in the currency if you didn't put stamps on them. But the idea was that you would buy stamps that, let's say each stamp was for a penny, and then every every week to maintain the value of the piece of paper, you had to put an extra stamp on it, where um, Eisler's plan was, was a, a straight dual currency system. And it, you weren't trying to physically do anything to the colored pieces of paper that we call money.
1: As you heard in the cold open, the Gessel Plan is fairly well known among economists because Keynes wrote about him in his famous general theory of money, employment, and interest. The Planet Money podcast even did an episode about Gessel. I wrote to them several times trying to get them to do an episode about Eisler, but they never got back to me. Now that we know how Professor Kimball stumbled upon Eisler, let's find out how Eisler's work has influenced his thinking.
0: Let me tell you the, the part that is in common between what Eisler was proposing and and what I've been proposing, and most recently in two papers with Ruchir Agarwal. But uh, the the idea is to have bank money, which nowadays uh, you can call electronic money because it's numbers in a computer. But in, in Eisler's day, it would have been in a in a paper ledger. But the fundamental thing about bank money is that it's very easy to have both positive and negative interest rates because the a negative interest rate just means the amount of money in the in the bank account declines gradually over time instead of being augmented gradually over time another way to think of negative interest rates is that the person lending the money is actually paying someone else to store that money for them rather than the person borrowing the money paying the lender for the use of the money. So it's just who who pays whom is the only difference between positive and negative interest rates. But so there's this bank money, and then there's the paper currency. Now, in Eisler's day, he had to deal with the gold standard too, but let's leave the gold standard aside. So you try to target having zero inflation with the bank money, and then... With the paper currency, you have uh, some different value. I mean, in are different ways of talking about it, but basically in the periods of time when you need negative interest rates, the paper currency has to depreciate in value relative to the bank money. Now, you could have the paper currency depreciate forever, but it's also possible to have the paper currency come back up to equal in value with the bank money, with you know, the paper dollar coming back up equal to the electronic dollar in the times when the economy is fairly robust and has a positive interest rate. So that's what's in common, the idea of having a, a zero-inflation currency that's that's the bank money or the electronic money, and then you have the paper currency still in existence but in a subsidiary role And it can have an exchange rate that changes in relation to the bank money when necessary. And in good times, that's not going to be necessary. But, you know, in the bad times, you have to have the paper currency depreciate relative to the electronic money so that the the paper currency doesn't get in the way of having very stimulative monetary policy by having deep negative interest rates. You know, negative negative interest rates are very powerful. And if you can get the paper currency out of the way, then you can have very deep negative interest rates and, and stimulate the economy as much as is necessary.
1: Obviously, the Senate declined to implement the Eisler plan, but it's hard to count this episode as a total failure for Eisler. After all, how many scholars of Orphic religion were invited to propose their own monetary systems to the British Empire and the United States in the wake of the Great Depression? But even now, no nation has adopted any version of the Eisler Plan, although Nixon would eventually drop the gold standard. One thing, at least, is clear from this episode. Eisler considered himself an authority on both the history and the theory of money, along with the practical application of both. What I mean by that is that Eisler apparently also acted as a financial advisor. One letter I found from Reverend W.A. Wordsworth, a friend of Eisler's, and one of the references he listed on his immigration form to England, says that Eisler had convinced an investment bank to put his principles into action. Apparently they made a bit of money, too. But let's, for the love of God, leave economics behind, because it's only one of the things Eisler was working on in the 1930s, the most eventful decade of his life. After the break, we will look at a dream he had at his mother's house, and Eisler's solution to one of the greatest mysteries of biblical scholarship.
4: (laughs)
2: All my life I have wanted to excavate some archaeological site in the Near East. For one reason or another I have never been able to do it. Asleep in my mother's house in Unterark am Antersee in Upper Austria on the night preceding the 25th of August, 1936. I dreamed I was digging with my bare hands into a steep sand dune in a blindingly sunlit desert. I could distinctly feel the gritty sand under my nails. Suddenly, I got hold of a bit of papyrus and extricated it slowly with great care, hoping all the while it would prove to be one of the rare literary texts and not one of the thousands of business documents most often encountered lo and behold it was a greek poem unknown to me having read it i thought if i am to publish this text i must translate it first into verse i sat down and did it on the spot while i scribbled into my notebook There was a terrific noise, almost like an earthquake, and the whole sand dune I had undercut by my digging came down chokingly all over me. I awoke half-suffocated, only to realize that the noise had come from a peasant's cart rumbling over the stones of a lane below the open window in the early morning, saying to myself, I must not at any cost forget the poem. I rose, went to the adjoining library to write it down on a bit of paper, and returned to my bed to go on sleeping deeply.
1: I found these words typed on a piece of paper in a box containing Eisler's files at the Varberg Institute. At the time of this dream, Eisler was working on a new theory of the fourth gospel, the gospel of John. It's worth asking at this point why this particular part of the Bible was so interesting to Eisler. Well, it was and is interesting to everybody who wants to tell a story about early Christianity and the person of Jesus, using the scant sources that are available to us. One reason is that it is so different from Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the Synoptic Gospels. The church father Clement of Alexandria claimed that John told the spiritual story of Christ and the Synoptic Gospels told the historical story. And that's the way that a lot of Christians have thought about it. And it's clear from reading the text that John's gospel is drawn from more than one source. For example, in chapter 21, the author tells a story about Jesus performing some miracles involving fish for his disciples. And then says that this story came down from the disciple who swears that it is true. So it's clearly not the writer who witnessed these events. It's also true that there seem to be competing narratives of who Jesus was in the gospel and places where it's clear that new material had been inserted. Since the very earliest days of the church, people have identified the author as the Apostle John, and they have identified the Apostle John as a so-called beloved disciple. But people have also argued that this title belongs to Lazarus, which is what Eisler is going to say. There's a lot more to the story than this, but I'm no expert, and I think this is enough background for us to get back to Eisler. Here is Eisler's story about the fourth gospel in a nutshell. First of all, you need to know something about Marcion. Marcion was a heretic who preached that Jesus had nothing to do with the wrathful God of the Old Testament. Marcion actually founded a church of his own that attracted a fairly large following after he was excommunicated around 144. According to Eisler, sometime in the early 2nd century, Marcion obtained a document about the ministry of Jesus, composed by Jesus' beloved disciple, Lazarus whom he was supposed to have raised from the dead in the famous story from John's Gospel. Then, Marcion took this text to the last living witness to the life of Christ, John of Ephesus, the former high priest of the temple. Marcion wanted to supplement Lazarus' account with John's recollections, and so he acted as a scribe for the man, who was presumably very old at that time. But as he was transcribing John's words, Marcion began to make slight changes to them in order to reflect his own heretical views. Eventually, John read Marcion's transcription, noticed the heresies, and sent him away. John then took what Marcion had written, edited out the worst parts, and inserted some of his own material to contradict Marcion's heresies directly and identify Jesus as the son of the God of Israel. According to Eisler, the resulting text, with a core narrative from Lazarus, who he thinks was a real person but was not actually raised from the dead, interpolations by the heretic Marcion, and counter-interpolations by John of Ephesus, is the fourth gospel, what we call the gospel according to John. On February 12, 1936, the Times published a letter by Eisler laying out this story. He was writing to the Times because it had just reported on the recent discovery of an anti-Marcionite prelude to John's Gospel, which he felt clinched his theory. He apparently included his London address at the bottom of the letter and received post bags full of letters with every mail for days on end, as he put it, as well as a communication from Methuen, publishers of the Messiah Jesus and John the Baptist, who were interested in a new book on this theory. The book he ended up publishing, The Enigma of the Fourth Gospel is relatively short and straightforward for one of Eisler's books. He was convinced that it needed to be in order to reach his audience. He was also convinced that once they read it, publishers and the public alike would clamor for his planned second and third volumes, The Book of Lazarus and the Gospel of the Paraclete, in which he would claim that the paraclete, or reincarnation, more or less, of Jesus, was Simon, the magician mentioned unfavorably, I should add, in the Acts of the Apostles. When it came to the enigma of the Fourth Gospel, even Eisler's critics admired his ingenuity, his erudition, and his style, though they did not often accept his conclusion. A 1938 review by Sir Norman Angel presents a typical reaction to Eisler's style of argumentation. This passage was marked and underlined by Eisler himself in this personal copy of the press cutting.
3: Upon one reader, at all events, this book has exercised a strange and almost hypnotic fascination. And it is only at the last, when one lays it down and is freed from its spell, that little doubts as to the validity of the argument begin to insinuate themselves.
1: Iser's work on John, which began in 1930, actually brings us to a pretty significant point of convergence of the different lines of his thought and his overlapping scholarly associations. Way back in 1910, in Velton Mantle, Eisler had identified the spherical model of the world with a form of Orphic religion centered on the god of time Kronos Ion, a figure that was in turn borrowed from a god in the ancient Iranian pantheon, Zorvan. These ideas caught the attention of a brand new group of scholars, the Eranos Conference, which was Eisler's point of contact with some highly influential people who had become his frenemies, to use a contemporary term, Merce Eliade, Carl Jung, and Gershom Scholem, who he already knew, of course. In yearly meetings it has been hosting since 1933. Erinos invites famous scholars from different disciplines to give a talk on some aspect of religion, and then publishes these talks in a yearbook. When I spoke with Stephen Wasserstrom, who we've already heard from a couple of times, he explained to me how his work as a scholar and a teacher led him to a place of inner conflict that he could only solve by unpacking and critiquing what was going on at Erinos in its heyday.
5: I was Trained as a medieval Islamicist, so I I started out my career as an Orientalist working on medieval Arabic texts concerning Jewish-Muslim relations. Got a job at Reed College in Portland, Oregon, where I was teaching more generally in a religion department, religion uh, of all kinds. And when I did that, I came to realize rather quickly and um, rather shockingly that both Judaism and Islam, and my my focus is on teaching both, neither of them fit into the notion of religion that I understood was embodied at a place like Eranos. Uh, that is the approach that came to be called through Mirjaliada, the history of religions. Why uh, Judaism and Islam don't really fit um, started to bother me as I tried to uh, work around the problem with, with some very smart, smart students for a number of years. Uh, eventually, I worked out my, uh, my conflicts in a book called Religion After Religion. The book has uh, several arguments to it, but if I had to summarize one, I think I would say that it, it concerns something that I called mystocentrism, that is, the At Aronos, at which, which became an approach to religion that dominated religious studies more generally for a number of decades. Uh, so that was really the functional problem for me. Um, that it presumed that the scholar of religion should be some kind of initiate or master or otherwise have some kind of privileged insight into some greater um, some greater dimension of the universe. Somehow they were not just teachers, in other words. Uh, And this was assumed in, certainly in the work of uh, Mircea Eliade and any number of the Aronos lecturers from the heyday of the Aronos movement.
1: At first, it seemed like Eisler was fitting in perfectly with this idea, although I don't think he actually had a mystical bone in his body. In 1935, he was invited to lecture on the topic of John's Gospel at the Arenos Conference, which marked the beginning of his connection to Jung, who was a major figure at Arenos. Jung had already been reading Eisler and went on to cite his work on Orphic symbolism in his 1935 essay, Dream Symbols and the Individuation Process, and subsequently in a lecture on Nietzsche's Thus Spoke Zarathustra, among other places. At Arenos, Iser was received warmly and found himself in the company of such giants in the history of religion as the Hungarian mythologist Karl Kerenyi, the German Indologist Heinrich Zimmer, and the British Buddhologist Caroline Rhys davids Arenos co-founder Olga frobe Kaptein, reported to Jung that one of her cats had allowed Iser to witness her birthing a litter, which apparently raised him in her estimation. I asked Stephen about this woman, who I later learned was also an accomplished artist when I saw some of her esoteric-themed prints at the Buckland Museum of Witchcraft and Magic in Cleveland.
5: She was a wealthy woman who had a, a place on Lago Maggiore in, in Switzerland, uh, and which put her in contact with Carl Gustav Jung. And so she was a, a, a follower of Jung. She was an entrepreneurial type and a religiously, mystically-oriented type. She got in contact with Rudolf Otto, the famous author of the idea of the holy. I was very much moved by him and got a kind of permission from him to start this kind of circle. There had been other kinds of circles like this, particularly in Central Europe in those years. And so with the blessing of Otto and her contact with Jung and her, her money, she began to invite these very carefully, small, carefully handpicked number of mystically oriented scholars to Ascono, Switzerland every year. Uh, it really took off with the money of Paul Mellon, uh, reputedly the richest man in the world. Whose wife Mary Mellon had been psychoanalyzed by Carl Jung. So between uh, Olga Kaptain and uh, Mary Mellon, uh, there were women who really were the driving force behind what was otherwise an almost exclusively androcentric men's club, and they saw themselves as a kind of spiritual circle. So that meant a kind of a uh, self-identification that they had as initiates into a kind of special and privileged position in the world of spirituality, and then they made it very comfortable with fine meals, and they, they met around a famous round table. They ate together, and it was a tone was set by the very convivial Carl Jung. So yes, and then many of them then came back repeatedly over a period of decades, so they got to know each other very well in the period before, during, and after World War II, when things were economically stressed uh, um, in the invitation list, this is not fair to say, to put it quite this way, but this was quite a boondoggle, to be invited annually to this very um, beautiful Swiss resort-like event and spend all this time with with some of the most famous scholars in the world. It was uh, highly desirable, and it was by invitation only, so you, you couldn't you couldn't apply for it. it. wasn't advertised. It was all a private event.
1: Another Erno's attendee, Ernst Robert Curtius, a German philologist who worked on medieval Latin literature, called Eisler a real Alfklärer, German for enlightener.
3: Eisler showed with uncanny clarity where the cold dialectic of the white man's intellect leads to a petrifaction, a rigor mortis, of the world as a concept. What remains is the inner malaise of Solomonic world weariness.
1: I'm actually not sure whether that's supposed to be a compliment or not. Does he mean that he demonstrates that through his arguments, or through his personality? Anyway, eventually the Eranos group soured on Eisler and Frohbacaptine changed your opinion of him, writing that he sometimes used his outstanding intellectual abilities to prove something that he knew to be untrue, simply for the sake of intellectual amusement. The 1935 edition of the Aranos Yearbook published the paper he had presented in the form of an essay titled The Riddle of the Gospel of John. True to form, the essay was 180 pages long, far longer than any other in the series. But let's get back to
2: Eisler's dream. When I woke up finally, I had actually forgotten the poem. When I told my dream to my wife, she suggested I might have dreamt even the final effort of putting it down on paper. But we did find on my desk the German verse translation with a Greek title, Eros Invincible in Battle, taken from Sophocles' Antigone, 781. The following is an English version given to Léon de Sousa at his request on the 1st of May, 1948. Two kinds of missiles throws invincible eros, pointed javelins penetrating lightly or deeply, yet easily dropping out from the quivering flesh and falling down to the ground by their own dead weight. Clean wounds slain by these darts heal easily. Gently caressing them, the hands of time will smooth out the scars till they vanish. Dread thou, however, the bow and incendiary arrows of Eros, barbed and fired with flames which burn and sear man's bleeding heart. If these are ripped out, the mortally wounded victim will perish, a shadow drifting down to Hades. I have never found... Anywhere, a Greek or classicist poem corresponding to these lines, which I might have remembered by what is known as cryptomnesia. Otherwise, the dream is a transparent wish fulfillment. The digging with bare hands occurs in Shaw's John Bull's Other Island, which I have read time and again. In this play, two poor settlers are mentioned who dig the ground for their first potato field with their bare hands and buy their first spades and holes from the proceeds of their first harvest. Therefore, in the dream, this action means defiance of the financial difficulties. The caving in of the undercut sand dune signifies the bankruptcy resulting from over-expenditure on such a venture even if successful.
1: I was pretty intrigued when I first read this. Here is a guy who has apparently composed a poem in Greek while dreaming, translated it, and written it down along with an analysis of the dream. In the next episode, we'll see him doing some more of that. But I think there's actually more to this dream than Eisler has admitted, beginning with the title of the buried poem, Eros, Invincible in Battle, a line that is at the beginning of the chorus's famous speech to Antigone in the Sophocles play, as she walks toward the cave where King Creon has ordered her to be buried alive for defying his command not to bury her dead brother's body. For a little context here, the ancient Greeks believed that leaving a body unburied meant that the soul could never rest. It was meant for terrible crimes like treason, which is what Antigone's brother was being accused of by King Creon. When you put this reference in the context of what Eisler was working on at the time, there is an inverted mirror image symmetry here between Antigone walking into her tomb, where she will be found to have hanged herself when Creon has a change of heart and tries to free her, and Lazarus who, after Jesus commands him, comes alive out of the tomb in which his dead body has been placed. On the one hand, Antigone goes in alive and comes out dead, while Lazarus goes in dead and comes out alive. The womb imagery of the cave in both Antigone and the Lazarus story corresponds to the place where Isaac was having the dream, his mother's house. The papyrus he digs up contains reference to Antigone, which suggests Eisler's fear of being buried alive, like she was, rather than miraculously emerging from his cave like Lazarus. In this context, the javelins and arrows of Eros in the poem sound less like Cupid's darts and more like Hamlet's slings and arrows of outrageous fortune. In Eisler's case, harsh critical appraisals of his work and his inability to find a stable teaching position. Unfortunately, much bigger problems for Eisler lie ahead. Please join us next week when we will continue with the themes of early Christianity and dream analysis in one of the strangest episodes in the whole Eisler saga. I'd like to thank my guests Miles Kimball and Stephen Wasserstrom. For this week, the voice of Robert Eisler was provided by Caleb Crawford with additional voices from Brian Evans. Throughout the podcast, I've received assistance with engineering, recording, and editing from March Wieselowski and Logan Marshall. The music is Shibboleth Baseda, recorded by Ayakum Shapira and his Israeli orchestra. Special thanks also go to the Vorberg Institute and the School of Advanced Study at the University of London. Partial funding has been provided by the Ohio University Humanities Research Fund and the Ohio University Honors Tutorial College Internship Program.
4: We're going to a part of the world, and and